Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the School of Travel's podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you my interview with Sarah Mikutel, who not only is a podcast host herself, but she is also a certified clarity coach, helping people to find more peace, joy, and focus in their daily lives. Sarah and I discuss her early travel experiences, including moving to England for the summer at the age of 18 and working as a chambermaid, and also moving to Italy in 2010 and getting her dual citizenship through her Italian roots in only two months. We then discuss different ways that the values of Stoicism and the Enneagram can help you develop more intention and focus. Without further ado, here is my interview with Sarah. Welcome to episode 56 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I'm here with fellow podcaster, Sarah Mikatel. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me an excellent pronunciation of my last name. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Sarah, so I've already said that you're also a podcaster, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself to get started? A little bit more about yourself. Yes, I would be happy to. So my name is Sarah Mikatel. I am an American expat who has been in England for 10 years now. About I'm hitting my 10-year anniversary, and I was living in Italy before that. And I'm sure we can get into how I managed to get my citizenship there. Uh, and I'm also the host of the Live Without Borders podcast, which is a show that I originally started to feature people like Becky and myself, women who just packed up everything to start a new adventure in another part of the world. And I still have those interviews and love those interviews, but the show has evolved a bit. And I also talk a lot more about well-being now, um, especially like stoicism and mindfulness and things like that. And this journey has led me to become a coach. And so I love helping people evolve into like the most heroic version of themselves. I'm so excited to dive more into that later in this episode, especially since like me, you have this big travel background. So I guess first, let's talk about that. Um, How did your early life influence the fact that you became such a traveler? When I was a kid, we did kind of local trips, so maybe weekend trips. We went to Disney World twice for my dad's job. We went to Canada once or twice, but we didn't do any massive international travel, just average travel, I would say. And then when I was 18, I uh, spent the summer in England's Lake District because back then, I'm not sure if it's the same, but you could get a blue card to work in like hospitality and stuff like that. And so I got a job as a chambermaid in the Lake District. And it's to this day, I think the most gorgeous place I've ever lived. Uh, But I lived in like a converted stable. (laughs) It was like really grueling work. I was scrubbing bathtubs every day and they wouldn't let us use the lift because that's what the guests used. We had to haul like the vacuums up and down the steps. And even though it was like such hard work, I just fell in love with England, fell in love with the pub culture. It was amazing to me because at 18, I was used to in the States, uh, people are quite segregated when it comes to age. Like it never would have occurred to me that like grandparents would be hanging out with their 
teenage grandchildren in a, in a pub, but that's what I was seeing. I was like, oh my gosh, I love this. I love that everyone is just mixing in this way. And I just love the history and the culture. And so, and now I live in England. So <laughs> it started from then. Oh, that's amazing. And as someone who's also been to the Lake District, I didn't make it there actually until 2019. I can mm-hmm. understand completely how at such a young age, you would have just fallen in love and wanted to find a way to return as soon as possible. Absolutely. So you went to the UK. And, and then what happened after that? Because I know we've already talked about Italy and you were living there. How did Where did you go next? Yeah. So I went back to the UK as a student. So I studied abroad when I was a junior and spent a semester in London. And I was like, this country is as as great as I remember it, (laughs) except this time I was having an urban experience. And so my classes were all in museums and on walking tours. And it was just the most magical, (laughs) magical time. And I was devastated when it was time to leave and just thought like, I have to come back here. Like, this is where I want to live. But like quite a few years went by before I could figure out how to come back to England. Because as a student, it's easy. You can either study there or, you know, get a, a visa to work in like a hotel if you're like a student or something like that. But as an adult who's trying to like have a professional career, I couldn't figure out how to make it happen until many years later when I was living in New York. Wow. I would actually love, I'm sure many listeners would love to hear how you figured that out because I mean, our sense of travel, our wanderlust is just building and building this past year. We're all ready to start new adventures. How did you finally figure that out after so many years to get back and live there? Yeah. So I think I had heard at some point that you could like maybe be eligible for Italian citizenship through your ancestry if you had like an Italian grandfather or something like that. So I I don't think I paid much attention to it because it was my great grandparents who had come over from Sicily. But then randomly, I stumbled upon this article saying that you could go back much farther in your ancestry as long as you had the paperwork to prove it. And so I got my mom to help me start tracking down these documents. And like the weird quirk is that your grandparent or whoever, like great grandparent in my case, they had to have naturalized as a citizen after their kids were born. So my great grandparents didn't become U.S. citizens until after they had kids. And so my grandfather was still considered Italian in Italy's eyes because he was born to Italian parents. And so everyone down that lineage was considered Italian. So you just had to formalize it with paperwork and documents and things like that. So my mom and I were gathering these documents and I was like super excited. And you have to get anything like in English translated into Italian. And So I found a translator and she said, you know what? The New York consulate is so tough. Like they throw people out all the time, throw out their documents all the time because, or they'll make you go. And it's just a huge, huge elaborate thing. Cause when people came over from Italy coming through Ellis Island, all the documents misspelled people's names and then people got married and it was like spelled differently. And you have to go and get apostilles to like have the names formally recognized and different things like that. And so my translator was like, you should just move to Italy. Like that's what I did. I moved to this small town called Reggio Emilia and I had my passport in like a month. They're so much more efficient. Like it will take you forever in New York if they even like accept your documents. So I was like, 
all right, stranger on the internet, well, I'm going to take your advice. And so I packed up everything in my life in New York and moved to Italy, just bought a one-way ticket, took one suitcase and set up residency there. And, you know, thankfully met some great friends. Reggio Emilia is an amazing town. I ended up getting my passport in like two months, but I stayed for almost a year because I loved it so much. But yeah, that's how I did it through, through my ancestry. Wow. Okay. So my mind is blown and I have some questions (laughs) here. Um, So you found this article on the internet, like you said, I guess you were searching a bit as well um, to find these things, but then you from the US were thinking to apply for the, for the passport, but instead you just bought a one-way ticket and went to Italy and were able to do it. Were you a tourist at that point when you went to Italy and you were just able to do all the paperwork there? Yeah. So if you are, if I, this was 10 years ago at this point, a little over 10 years ago, but from what I recall, and I have an episode on this on my podcast, but from what I recall, if you are going through this process, you can get like a special visa. So you can stay indefinitely to, to get, you know, whatever you need to get done, but you do need to set up residency. And when I was there, it was like pre Airbnb. So I'm sure it would be much easier to set up residency. Now it was actually quite hard (laughs) because, you know, Reggio wasn't a major, it's not like where tons of tourists go. And, um, also, the internet was like slower to adapt <laughs> in in Italy. Like it was a lot slower for companies to go online and for people to post like housing availability online. And so there was a group called, well, I'm sure you all know what meetup.com is. And I found like a conversation group of Italians who wanted to, who like to speak English. And so like I met some friends through that and um, this young woman volunteered to like walk around town with me just to look like first signs of <laughs> apartments for <laughs> um for rent because I really wanted to live in that specific town because that's where I knew it would be like much more efficient to get to get my um passport. And so we spent the whole day walking around <laughs> asking people. Nobody had any idea. And then finally at like the last spot we were like, let's get a coffee. So we stopped at this cafe she asked the barman and the barman was like, well, I don't know of any rooms, but that guy over there, he like has a place that might, he might be renting a room. So we asked this guy and he was like, yep, I've got a Greek girl who's moving out today. You can move in <laughs> like in a few days. Done. And that's how I found my apartment. Wow. And in this town, like you said, you wanted to move there because it would be easier. Is that because it was near the consulate in Italy where things were getting processed? No, it's because that's where my translator got. So she was the first American in, who went to Reggio Emilia and got her passport that way. Like she was there for like school and uh, and other stuff. Like that's how she ended up there. But she had such a good experience that she recommended it to me. So I had to live in that town if I wanted to go through their commune. Uh, and so, so I felt very grateful that I was, <laughs> I found a place there. Got it. It's just the power of networking and connection, isn't it? Like you never would have imagined that that was the route to get a quick passport. Yeah. When you first well, read that article, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say like, this is another thing that I absolutely love about travel and living abroad is I am not a naturally outgoing person. Like I was super shy when I was younger. And I I think younger me, like little kid me, imagining myself like just having to talk to everyone <laughs> and walk up to strangers and hustle and that way, like 
yeah, I don't know if I could even have comprehended it, but these like stretching experiences have just made me grow so much as a person. Well, and you didn't speak Italian when you were there either, right? When you first got there, how was your Italian at that point? Rusty. (laughs) I didn't grow up speaking Italian, but I did have, so in between me studying in England and moving to Italy to get citizenship, I had spent like two other like times, two months each in Italy. So I spent two months in Siena and I spent two months in Rome just because I wanted to. So Siena, I was writing my thesis for grad school and Rome, I just, like that's a whole nother story. But I quit my job. I decided I wanted to be in Rome, spend some time there. And then like my plan was to go back to New York and then my job hired me back and promoted me. And that's like another thing of like taking leaps because I never would have gotten a promotion had I not... I not quit my job so I could go to Italy for a little while. So I think things tend to tend to work out. But anyway, the point of that little story was that I had some experience in Italy before, like so living with Italians and and studying Italian a little bit. I've I've learned most of my Italian through making friends and talking to people. So I knew some Italian, but it it was not that great. Oh wow! But I mean, clearly it was the land that you're. It's the land you're tied to, and then you got a passport in such a short amount of time. I really hope that it's still possible for people to do the route that you did and just move there, because that would be that'd be a game changer for people listening to this that may not be aware. That this is well, something you can do. I mean, I think now above all, people should be thinking about that route because there's such a backlog in the U.S. Uh, like you can't go through any consulate. You have to go whatever like state you're living in, whatever you know, consulate you're tied to. And some of them have a 10-year waiting list. So if you don't want to wait 10 years, (laughs) move to Italy and do it there. And it's really, that's really subjective because like I can tell you, and I was interviewed by you for your podcast. So Mm -hmm. we're going to put links to all of this. And I was telling you about residency in Portugal and the opposite was true for me. I, I went to Portugal thinking it would be easier to do it there. And they're like, no, go to your home country. It's much faster there. And it was. So yeah. It's really, yeah, check check for that. But uh, I'm, I'm curious, so do you have any siblings? Did they get passports as well after your journey to get an Italian passport? So my sister didn't. My mother did go through the process in the States, and she did end up getting her citizenship, although she never went through the final process of like actually getting her physical passport. And I want her to. I want everyone in my family. <laughs> I think it's always good to have a backup plan. And so, but yeah, I'm the only one who's got a passport right now. Interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, I know also on your podcast that Live Without Borders that you you highlight a lot of different cities that expats and location independent people can visit and enjoy. Um, but after interviewing them and after traveling yourself, what is your favorite city and why? Oh, I don't know if I can say just one. Can I say three? <laughs> you can say three. Oh, that'll, that'll be even more interesting for listeners. <laughs> All right. Well, London has always been my favorite city. And I lived in New York for a number of years. I lived in Boston. I've spent a lot of time in Rome uh, as well. And well, I would say London and Rome are my favorite cities to to live in. And it's just like, I love the history. I love the culture. Um. Italy is more laid back. I love spending like late spring, early summers there uh, before it starts getting like too crazy hot. And 
But yeah, I think sometimes the things, it's like a more of a feeling rather because people ask me or used to ask me all the time, what's the difference between New York and London? Which do you like better? Why? And New York and London have a lot of similarities. They're both very international. There's a lot of culture like going on, but I just feel more at home in London. And um, so, yeah, for like big cities that I've actually lived in, London and Italy are my favorites. And they're both also amazing food cities. And it surprises people sometimes when I say that about London, <laughs> but <laughs> it's true. And then my other favorite is Sarajevo in Bosnia. And that's just like another one where you go and there's just something like soul shaking for me anyway, when I got there, that sort of just took my breath away. It's just such a fascinating history, like a, a very sad history because of like the Bosnian wars and everything like that. But a really interesting place, a really beautiful place. And you can just, there's like, they have one street there where on one end you see like all of the architecture from when the Ottomans were like occupying them. And then you go down and you see when like the Austro-Hungarian empire, like the architecture starts to change. So you see like that switch and then you go down a little bit further and you see when it was like Yugoslavia and go down a bit further and you see more like a modern shopping malls. And so it's just such a fascinating place and it's still kind of under the radar. Well, I can say it's one city. It's the only city of these cities you've been mentioning that I haven't been to. And I've, it's been on my list for a while. And yes, thank you for sparking that interest in me let's to go, go back. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. Yeah. And I know that the people there have been through so much that it's just there's something special that you could just, as you said, feel in the air, the energy when you go there. I'm sure it's palpable. So, yeah. And as we're talking, I'm just thinking of like, so many other places I want to add like so I I actually did a road trip with a friend of mine and we went through like Serbia and then to Bosnia and because of the wars that happened it was actually like a lot harder than we thought it was going to be to get from Serbia to Bosnia we ended up having to hire like a private driver to get there because like the trains had just been kind of destroyed on that route and but I, that was an amazing experience to have this person who's just like telling us stories as we were driving through the different countries. And then from Bosnia, we went to Croatia and that's just pretty much all coast. And so if you like the sea, I, I re definitely recommend uh, the Bosnia, Croatia trip. Like you said, that's a region that's so underrated and still kind of off the radar, but I, I have no doubt that in the future it's going to get so popular and people it'll explode and like tourists and things like that because there's there is such a rich history there yeah well as i said before you talk with a lot of fellow travelers on your podcast have you been inspired by them to uh put a, a new city on your list that you haven't been to what city are you most excited about visiting once we can finally get back on the road Romania has been on my list for a long time. And so I definitely want to go to Bucharest and then make my way to Transylvania. And I did interview a, like an English woman who moved there quite a long time ago because it was good for job opportunities. Uh, she's was, you know, from London and majored in journalism and 
she was like, the market was so saturated. And I saw a job opportunity in Romania where they were looking for an English speaker. So to me, that was fascinating that she moved to Romania for a job opportunity. But when you start thinking of things in that way, like a, a lot of people think like, oh, I need to move to New York to find a job. I need to move to London. There's so many different like smaller places that they have opportunities for people who want to live abroad. And so she was really nice. And I just loved our conversation. Romania sounded so interesting. And so that's definitely on my list. Oh, it's on my list too. I, I really meant to go the, like, I think last year it was in the plans, but yeah, the same. I, I interviewed someone on my podcast, shout out to Martine, uh, <laughs> who she was loved gymnastics as a kid and ended up teaching herself Romanian, despite the fact that she was Dutch to learn wow. more about the Romanian gymnastics world. And she just went to Romania and tried to go to a gymnastics club and start talking to them and eventually got a job as a reporter there for a, few, for a brief time. And so you just never would imagine, but if That's you have a passion. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm going to give a shout out to Debbie, who is um, the one I know uh, who's living there. And, you know, I started my podcast because I really wanted to have like interesting conversations with like fellow expat women. But I was also working at a startup kind of b before I started the podcast and they were like crazy hours and I didn't really have any time to like plan trips or anything, but I still wanted to travel like on weekends when I could. And I'm like a typical expat. Like I've been here for 10 years and see myself here for a long time, but always in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I don't know where I'm really going to be. So I might as well take advantage of traveling now. And so starting the podcast was a way, also a way for me to like learn about places that I want to go to. And so I can just have a conversation with a local who can tell me everything that I need to do and possibly hang out with me. And so I've like made, I've become good friends with some of, uh, some of the people I've interviewed and gone on to travel with them. Same. It's amazing. The connections you can make as a podcaster, shameless plug for podcasting guys. We yeah. both are, it is a great world to get into. Um, but let's switch gears now. I know that you have gotten into stoicism more recently and the Enneagram. So I wanted to talk about both on this podcast. So can we start with stoicism? First of all, I'm going to admit that I don't really know much about it at all. So can you explain what it is and why you got into it? And we'll go from there. Yes. So stoicism is a 2300-year-old philosophy that essentially says, live your values. Uh, don't worry about things that are beyond your control and be a good person of good character who looks out for other people. And I would say that I'm kind of a naturally <laughs> stoic person. I'm I'm a I'm a pretty chill person. And actually before I go further, let me just say like clarify what uppercase stoicism is and what lowercase stoicism is. So I think when people hear the word stoic, they usually think of somebody who is like a rock and kind of emotionless. And that's the complete opposite of what stoic like uppercase stoicism is. So stoic um, is somebody who doesn't let negative emotions control their life, but they have a lot of positive emotions. Like compassion is a huge thing for stoicism. And so it's not that you have no emotions. It's that you learn to reel them in in a healthy way, not in a suppressing way. Uh, and similar with the Enneagram as well, like that's the whole integration of like mind, body, spirit, and we need to be living more integrated 
um, healthy lives is is what really appealed to me. So it's about being a good person and doing the right thing and like not sweating the small stuff, essentially. Wow. How did you get into stoicism? What led you to this practice, this philosophy? So I um, had heard of stoicism, but didn't know a ton about it. And then one of the last places I visited before the pandemic was Athens, Greece. And I met a listener of my podcast there. So somebody who listened to my podcast uh, and had become a fan of it said, hey, I'm going to Greece. Do you want to come? And I said, sure, because I always say on my podcast, like, be careful of like inviting me places because I'll say yes. <laughs> and so awesome. Yeah. So we met in Athens together and we ended up going on a tour and the guy spoke about stoicism quite a bit. And then I was thinking like, oh, this really resonates with me. And something that I had been saying on my podcast all along was, you know, make every moment matter. Like you'll never have this day again. And that's something that I always felt real, like very much in my bones. And that's kind of like the whole <laughs> of stoic philosophy or like a big part of stoic philosophy is this is it. Like do not dwell on like the tiny things and don't waste your time getting angry because you could be dead tomorrow. <laughs> Essentially, you need to start living your life now. And that is just like, whoa, yeah, I feel that. What great timing too, right before we all went into the pandemic and we're going to probably feel our feelings even stronger than we were before exactly. and feel that every day s certainly counts. So yeah, how, how has stoicism really helped you during this time, this last year? Well, I would say that one of like the big things about stoicism like in these times is in social media, you see people screaming at each other all the time, especially in the states where things became so polarized, like, and especially at the, during the election, I think it was at its height. And it's very easy to get caught up in all of that. And stoicism helps you, like, check your emotions. And like that quote, um, some things are in your control and other things are not, sounds so simple. That's what's by Epictetus. But if you like really sit and think about it, we hold on to so many things that are not in our control at all. And if we can just be more mindful and like ask that question, is this in my control or is it not? And like move on, like that's one way to help yourself feel better. But then also they're like, get, they'll say to get curious. And so if somebody is saying something on social media that <laughs> you think is ridiculous, instead of shutting them down, ask them like, oh, what makes you think that? Or like, oh, wow, you seem like you have quite strong opinions about this. Like, where where is this coming from? Tell me more about this. And not just for social media, of course, but like real life conversations or like at the holidays, if you've got like a relative who's complete opposite of you politically, <laughs> instead of like screaming at this person or not talking to them at all, just get curious about what they're saying. And really from my experience and from everything that I've read, that's the only way you're going to have any influence over anybody's opinion is to engage in a dialogue <laughs> or because people will just dig in their heels if you try to prove them wrong or point finger fingers at them yeah like you said be curious about why are they thinking the way they're thinking and yeah. what's behind it and how maybe can we learn to like connect with them and and not be so divisive yeah and marcus aurelius was like this it was the emperor almost 2,000 years ago. And he has a book called The Meditations that was never 
meant for public viewing. It was kind of his like journal to himself about how to be a good person and how to live a good life. And yeah, it's just wisdom to himself, but we can use it as wisdom for ourselves now. And one of the things that he said is it was right in his mind. So come at things from the point of view of they think they're doing the right thing and maybe they're like miseducated. Maybe they've been brainwashed in some way, but in their mind, they're not trying to be hateful to you. They just don't know what they're talking about possibly, or they could just be full of like such hurt and rage. So think of where the other person is coming from and that in their head, they think they think they're right. They're not necessarily out to be malicious. Yeah. Such great advice for this day and age. And hopefully when we're all out and about again, we can remember this stuff too. Yeah. I'm curious, like, how do you practice stoicism? What is your way that you stay in touch with it? And you've mentioned Marcus Aurelius. Do you read books about it on a regular basis or how would I, how would I keep stoicism in my daily life and practice it? Well, I want to recommend a book that I absolutely love called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor by Donald Robertson. I think he uh, he's my favorite Stoic author, modern Stoic author. And if you get the audiobook, he's got this lovely Scottish accent. But it has like a lot of um, Stoic practices that you can do. So something that I do is journaling. So every morning, I'll like kind of free write to clear my brain of things. And then I will it out kind of like what I want to do during the day. So, and that's what the Stoics did. They had like a morning journaling practice. And then they had an evening journaling practice as well, where they like did sort of a review of like, okay, so what did that, did I do what I say I was going to do? What went well today? What didn't go as well, you know, as it could have? And what can I do better next time. And then they let it go. They didn't like hang on to it. They didn't like chastise themselves like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do this? They're like, all right, well, they kind of looked at things like data. Like, this is what happened. I wish I didn't do this. I did. (laughs) I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to move on. And then like clean slate. And then it's kind of like a circle where then you do your morning meditation. And so it's like constant reflection of yourself really love that. And I have to admit, I haven't been in a regular journal practice these last few weeks. So that's, Uh. I'd love to do the morning and then touch back, you know, get back in touch with myself in the evening. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, and it's a practice to get into because I never used to journal in the past. It was like always an idea that I really liked. And I was like, I need to do that someday. And that's another thing that I have to say about Stoicism is like the Stoics would say, we are not a philosophy where you're just supposed to read it, which is kind of what philosophy has become in modern times, like academics in the ivory tower. And Stoics would say, no, this is an action philosophy. Like you have to live this. You can't just like read about these ideas and think, oh, this is a good idea. No, (laughs) you have to actually like implement it in your life. So since you started Stoicism, how has it affected your life? Have you noticed some big changes or what changes have you noticed? Well, I would say it's helped me focus on my priorities more. (laughs) I'm an easily distracted person. And so it helps me like doing that journaling practice helps me stay focused on on what I actually want to be doing. And that's, you know, another Stoic thing (laughs) where they're like, you can't be everywhere. You have to choose what's most important to you now 
and like stay focused on that. And so much of what I'm saying, people are probably like, oh, this idea sounds quite familiar. And that's because like there's a lot of um, spiritual books written now or, you know, coaches talking about this stuff. And I don't think stoicism gets cited enough as the inspiration for all of this. These ideas are thousands of years old. It's nothing new. We just kind of like lost it for a really long time. And it seems to be getting kind of a resurgence, which I think is so important. We need kind of a secular philosophy that people can can hold on to, I think. Yeah. And like you said, like you were mentioning the circle, like maybe we, we need to do that. It's time to circle back to our ancient origins and how people thought and the values they had then and bring it back home, you know? Yeah. Values yeah, is key. Yeah. All right. Well, I would love now to talk more about the Enneagram. I'm curious, like similar to stoicism, what got you into the Enneagram? Let's start there. Yeah. Yeah. So I have another podcast called Podcasting Step by Step. And I'm trying to remember, like, I think I interviewed somebody on Myers-Briggs. And so it started getting me interested in these different sort of like assessments and stuff like that. And she actually went on to become a good friend of mine as well. So I'm making all these friends through my podcast. And I think she she was maybe interested in the Enneagram and I had never heard about it. And uh, then I started doing some research and it was another thing where I was like, oh my gosh, like this is mind blowing. So the Enneagram at its most basic level is a framework that says there are nine personality types and there's like a lot of different flavoring to those to those types, but essentially nine types. Um, that, and each type has a different core motivation driving their behavior and their beliefs. So we have certain behavior patterns and like emotion patterns that we get stuck in because of our particular personality type. And the Enneagram helps like raise our awareness about like <laughs> what these patterns are and like helps give us a path for growth. So while some other like personality assessments tell you kind of like what you are, which is fascinating. Like I thought Myers-Briggs was fascinating and I felt so seen when I read my type. I think the Enneagram does a much better job of explaining why you do what you do and just gives you like those real aha moments. So you can shift those patterns and, you know, start moving to a healthier place. Even if you feel like you're already in a good place, you're probably going to discover something about yourself that you're like, whoa, I didn't realize that, but it's so true. Wow. So I have to admit, like I took one of those really quick Enneagram tests just before our, our discussion today. And um, I came out to be a uh, nine. I'm very strongly a nine, uh, 98% according to this short test, but uh-huh. yeah, which is the peacemaker. Yes. Um, and it did feel very true to myself. It said, you like social harmony. And I lived in Japan for over 10 years, which is like the guiding philosophy of that <laughs> culture. So I'm like, this makes so much sense. <laughs> yes, I am also a type nine. So I think tests are like such a fun like way to get started. But they can also mistype people because people will either you know, answer how they want to be, or they might be going through like a particularly difficult time in the moment. So they're answering kind of like not how they usually are, or they're answering how like people see them or how like, uh, like how they're acting, but not necessarily like what's driving the way they're acting. And so I think tests are great to like start, but then, you know, you can read books to get like a better sense or do a typing session with somebody. 
Yeah, that was that was a question I had for you. Is like, what's the true difference between the well, the short tests on the internet? And I know you don't know which one I took. You don't know how many questions. I think there were probably sixty questions I had to answer. But uh-huh. what would be the difference between um, someone just taking one of those tests and then the typing that you're mentioning? Well, the typing session would go deeper. It would be like an hour long session, usually where you're asking different questions that would sort of like get to the key like way that people are like what's driving like their behavior in their life and and historically through all the different types. So asking different questions that they could possibly be and having that person like talk out their answers. And it really helps your raise helps raise your awareness because instead of like clicking through really fast, is it A or B, A or B on a test, you're actually like thinking through your answers. And, you know, in the typing sessions that I've done, often there's like tears <laughs> because it's people like, whoa, I did not realize this. I would like, this is the first time like this has like occurred to me. And so it just gives you more time for reflection, I think. Is this, is the Enneagram used like are different, you know, are you like if I had a coaching session with you, for example, would you give me guidance as to like what other type of uh, what types I should be trying to work with in my business or be friends with or romantically? Because I know with like horoscopes, for example, mm-hmm. we're always thinking, oh, this is your best star sign match or avoid this person, you know, this type of person. Is it similar with an Enneagram? I know there's nine different types, but I think it could be confusing for some people. Like they think it's like a horoscope or something. Well, the great thing about the Enneagram is it's all, it's a lot about self-discovery. So when people learn about it, it's people get, find it to be quite fun. Like, oh, I bet he's a three and I bet she's a five and I bet he's a six. And it can help you. Like it can be helpful for relationships. Like you're not really supposed to type other people can help give you a gauge. But if you do have like a partner or something, it, it could be nice for them to like do the exploration on their own. So you guys could learn about each other together. It's quite transformational, actually, if you have those conversations and it can like, if you're having miscommunication about something, it becomes a lot less personal because it's like, oh, you're reacting like this because of like such and such pattern. It has nothing to do with me. And it just brings like a lot more kindness and compassion um, for yourself and then for other people. So I'll give just give an example of like a type one. So they're known as like the perfectionists or the improvers. And they see what can be improved in the world. like everywhere they look and a lot of them are like you know for social justice and humanitarians or like fighting climate change and all of this type of stuff and their whole life feels like this big struggle of i'm trying so hard why isn't everybody else like trying as hard and they're so self-critical of themselves and but they can also be critical of other people but often it's in their mind coming from a place of love like oh, well, I'm always like thinking of how I can improve and I want you to be your best too. And so when you think of them in that way, it's like, oh, you're not like a total buzzkill or somebody who's like always trying to criticize me. You think you're trying to help me. But then that can open a dialogue, like a more honest dialogue of like, how is this making me feel? And, you know, so again, it just brings more compassion for the other and, and for yourself, I think. It does sound like it would be very useful in relationships, rom- romantic relationships. Um, but I'm wondering, like, it, it, would you recommend, like, I get a typing, for example, and then I recommend a typing 
session for my partner or something like that. Because that, that, like you said, don't assume the type that someone might be, but how would you know what they are then if they don't have a session? You could either type them differently or I have like something called like my rock solid relationship (laughs) VIP day where I type couples together and they can like each watch each other's session and then we come together at the end and like they discuss like things that they learned and how they could like work together better in the future. And so either option, but you asked me, uh, should I, if like I'm looking to date somebody, is there a particular type I should be looking for? And the answer is no, like any type can work together if they're healthy and, you know, willing to, to work on themselves. And so anyone can work with anyone as long as they're a kind person who who wants to have a good relationship with you. That's really good news. Yeah. So you don't need to break up with your partner. When you do the horoscope check and you're like, oh no, that person is not the type, is exactly the type I shouldn't be with. You're like, wait, what do I do now? Is this, this, this is doomed for failure? Yeah, it's good to know there's, there's strategies. Um, but on that note with strategies to improve yourself. So let's say I'm, I, you are my Enneagram coach and you know, my type, what are typical strategies that, you know, you might help clients with if they know, okay, yes, this is my type, but I'm, these are my struggles. I'm I'm not sure how that would work. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's different. So even if you're a type nine, you there, there are different variations of type nine, but I used to wonder why I was such like a stellar employee when I was working for other people. And then when I started my own business, I felt like I couldn't get my ish together. (laughs) And I just felt like, what is going on? I know what I want to do. I keep focusing on inessential things. I keep procrastinating. Like this is so frustrating. I see you nodding your head. (laughs) Yes, yes, I'm nodding my head. (laughs) (laughs) And The thing with nines is because we're peacemakers and, you know, quite conflict avoidant, we've tended to spend like most of our lives deferring to like other people's needs to keep the peace. And this might not be like a conscious thing, but if somebody was saying like, oh, what do you want for dinner? I don't know, whatever you want to have. Kind of like, was that a pattern in your life? Uh, Yes, yes. In fact, in our house, um, if we cried, uh, I remember my mom, you know, if I cried, she immediately would say, do you need therapy? Do you want me to send you to therapy? Like, I guess just strong emotions were not meant to be shown in front of our, each other. We were supposed to keep the conflict to a very minimum. Does okay. that make sense? Now, now my results <laughs> make sense or how yeah. I got into a pattern. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, and like the the school that I learned was that you're born with your personality type, but family, of course, can like influence different ways that things come out. But like another type nine trait is often like um, doesn't get angry that much, or at least doesn't feel that angry very often, but can be passive aggressive if people like you might be very agreeable for a lot of things. But then if somebody tries to make a decision on your behalf without your consent, it could be like, wait a minute, hold on. (laughs) And I might not tell you I'm ticked, but I'm going to drag my feet a little bit on this or be a little bit pouty. Yeah. Like you said, there's probably different ways that a nine would react or show their passive aggressive side. Yeah. Um, And so, but like the thing that nines need to do work on is to really like realize 
You know what? I My needs are just as important as other people's needs, and I really need to start prioritizing what I need to do above, you know, or at least equal to what other people do. Because the tendency is, you know what? I actually not sure I want to put myself out there. <laughs> so if somebody comes to you and needs help with something, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to drop what I need to do and help you with what you need to do. Because... <laughs> you know, you're deferring and being like other referencing. So that's a term that like, that's attributed to nines that you're more other focused, like, all right, well, I'll do what you need. And the priorities of nines tend to just fall to the background. So you just have to make quite a conscious effort and like use some of those stoic principles of staying focused on the goal and not getting distracted by things that are not going to help you achieve that goal. So doing the journaling practice and just getting clear on, on what's important to you. And when people ask you questions or like ask for your opinion about something, like give it. Really interesting. Thank you. It's it's so interesting too that we're the same type, at least <laughs> on the internet, I'm the same type as you. <laughs> well, I feel like you're a kindred spirit, Becky. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. I feel <laughs> that too. Um, I'm curious, like, where did the Enneagram come from? So that's an interesting mix. It's kind of like a, a blend of ancient wisdom and modern psychology. And so there was this guy named Gurdjieff, um, like, I don't know, 100 or so years ago, this like Armenian Russian guy who traveled around the world and collected all of these oral traditions, but he was kind of like secretive about where he was hearing what. So like some people say it's like from the Pythagoreans, some of it, some of it is from like some Sufi tribe. And so he collected all of this stuff and started to like form his own school. But then there was like a Chilean guy um, named Ichazo who took some of those teachings and started to develop the nine types. And this was only like in the last few decades. And then one of his students, um, this guy by the last name of Naranjo, layered like actual psychology around it. So it's based on like psychological principles that we use today with an ancient tradition that's a bit mysterious. Interesting. Yeah, I, I do know that, you know, our brains are, they're just subject to looking for patterns. And when they, you see these nine different types, the brain, I'm sure, is very happy to put itself into one of these types. Or as you said, like, oh, she might be a type this, so I'm going to react like this. Like, yeah, I could see where there would be a tendency to start putting these into a systematic you know, yeah. method. Like the, and the Enneagram symbol, so it's um, kind of like a circle with the triangle on the inside and this sort of hexagon looking thing. So a nine pointed design in this circle. And that first appeared um, several hundred years ago, but it could be much older than that, but that's like the first documentation that we have of it. Wow. So thank you for sharing more about that. I'm interested in looking into this more. I actually think that my sister has gotten into it as well. She has like, I think typed all of her children and is just, it's really helping her with parenting. Just knowing that, like you said, we're not sure if we're born with our personality and that things are, you know, how much is mutable or not, but she's definitely seeing with her parenting that it, it helps to kind of have a sense of how they are different. So it can give you like an idea and Again, as I said, like we're not supposed to type other people, but it can be helpful to parents if you think like, I think he might be this (laughs) and you can help try to like 
parent accordingly. And then when they're older, have conversations about themselves so they can learn more about and like talk to you about how they're feeling and, and what's, and what's driving what they're doing. Wow. Yeah. So it's all coming from a place of compassion, I think, Mm -hmm. and wanting to know more about your inner self and other people's inner worlds and how you can make the world a better place by getting along and connecting more. Yeah. And and that's why I see so much connection with stoicism as well, because that is also, also about compassion and, you know, the whole idea that we're all connected in this world and we need to treat each other well. Oh, thank you for sharing all this. Um, If people want to find out more, do you have any recommendations for Enneagram books, first of all? Well, I've got a free course that you can take. So you can go to sarahmicatel.com slash Enneagram. And I guess that will be in the show notes. Yes, we're going to put all the links to uh, all these different resources on the schooloftravels.com. Great. Yeah. And if people want to follow you and find out more about your podcasts, where can they go? Again, you can go to sarahmicatel.com or I'm on Instagram at sarahmicatel. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. It's been such an eye-opening experience to learn more about how similar we are in some ways and these different cities that you've been to and the journey to getting an Italian passport. Um, where are you going next? Where is, is the next? What's, what's next for Sarah Mikatel? After this whole lock, after you can get out of your own country, which I've heard in the UK right now, that's very difficult to do. Yeah, it's bizarre. I do feel trapped for the first time in my life. And I'm so glad that I live at the beach. So I lived in London for many years. And now I live in this little beach town called Folkestone. Uh, So it's a great place to spend the pandemic. And I don't know. I want to go to Italy because it's been a while. And then I'm sure I will go visit my parents in the States because I've got a little nephew there. And I miss him so much. Oh, well, hopefully we all get to travel again very soon. And thank you again, Sarah, for joining me today. This has been so fun. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your travel wisdom with us and also teaching us more about Stoicism and the Enneagram. It was the first time for me to hear about these things, and I definitely want to learn more about how to implement these practices into my own life and challenge myself to live a life with more intention and joy every day. If you're interested in one-on-one coaching with Sarah to learn more about Stoicism or the Enneagram or how to live a more intention-filled life, you can check out her website at sarahmichotel.com. Sarah also has two podcasts herself. The first is a travel-focused podcast called Live Without Borders, where she interviews a variety of expats about their travel experiences. She also has a podcast about podcasting called Podcasting Step-by-Step. If you've been wanting to start a podcast yourself, but you don't know where to start, or you can't find the motivation to take that first step, this is a great podcast for you. I will put the links to Sarah's website and her podcasts on theschooloftravels.com, as always. Thanks for tuning in, listeners, and be sure to come back for our next episode, where I'm going to speak with another American expat, and we will tackle the question, is it safe to travel again? Until next time, listeners, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. 
Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in